0: this morning, and then next week we'll look into a message from Matthew 1 on the Christmas story. Uh, There should be a bulletin um, outline that you would be able to follow along with, and there are printed messages at both exits. You can grab one either now or later and um, follow along there. There's a lot of extra verses and things I put in those Printed messages that aren't, I'm not able to cite here because of time restraints. Um, And all the printed and audio messages are on the church website as well. And I appreciate your prayers for those uh, means of outreach. I've been interacting extensively this week with a Church of Christ pastor who's trying to convince me that you have to be baptized to be saved. And uh, he's not exactly open to any other point of view, so I have those kinds of interactions frequently with people who contact me via the website. This morning we're going to chapter 5, verses 19 through 22 of First Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. John MacArthur, in his book Fool's Gold, tells the story of a man named Aben Johnson. He is a wealthy man, and he began investing in gemstones, he spent three million dollars on a blue diamond that was called the Streeter Diamond because it had been owned by a man named Streeter, and Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, uh, won it in a poker match. Uh, Mr. Johnson also in- invested two, 2.7 million in a collection of diamonds called the Russian Blue. He sunk another $17 million uh, into what was called the Sylvia Walton Collection, a set of diamonds that belonged to Sam Walton's daughter. In all, Johnson invested $83 million in these costly gems. Later, however, he found out that he had not bought genuine diamonds, but rather... Fake diamonds uh, that were nearly worthless. It turns out that Sam Walton didn't even have a daughter named Sylvia. And when Johnson found out the truth, he sued his jeweler, whom he had been trusting for all of these purchases, a man named Jack Hassan. A year later, the FBI arrested Hassan for fraud and in the year 2000 they convicted him sentenced him to 40 years in prison and ordered him to pay more than 78 million dollars in restitution but even so it's not likely that johnson is going to recover his 83 million the expensive lesson is he should have examined or had the diamonds examined by a gem expert before he sunk his fortune into worthless uh, diamonds that weren't diamonds at all. Even more serious, though, than being bilked out of millions of dollars is when a person is deceived about eternal life by a false teacher. Money is only temporal— Eternal life is, as the name says, eternal. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, not of darkness, of light, and that his servants, they also pose as servants of righteousness, not of evil. And so what is at stake is nothing less than the eternal destiny of souls. And like a good counterfeiter, Satan doesn't present his wares like monopoly money. He makes it look like the real thing. Uh, A few weeks ago, Linda took our church uh, offerings to the bank, and among them apparently was a counterfeit bill. And she didn't know it. It looked real. And turned it in, but the bank recognized that's not the real thing, and uh, so that does happen. But Satan, when he promotes doctrinal errors, they sound reasonable, and he always has verses to back them up, of course, and uses scripture, as he even did with Jesus, trying to tempt him, Um Satan has spiritual experiences that people claim have deepened their their spiritual life, uh, but they aren't genuine, and they really in the long run damage people. And so those who embrace Satan's deceptive errors either are seriously damaged spiritually if they are children of God, or, worst case scenario, they often suffer eternal condemnation while thinking that they have eternal life. And that is more tragic than losing 83 million on fake diamonds. Now, in all spiritual matters, there's a need for balance because on the one hand, you have some people who are gullible and they're prone to swallow every experience that comes along and And every false doctrine that comes along. But then on the other side, the pendulum swings. And you have people who may deny the legitimate working of the Holy Spirit. And they may, I've met people like this, they blast people who differ on every minor point of doctrine. And they are, uh, by doing that, denying the scriptural truth about the unity of the body of Christ. And... So, Paul here, in writing to this church, and remember, these are probably not more than a year old in the Lord believers coming out of a pagan background, and Paul is urging them to spiritual balance. He's saying that while, on the one hand, we must not quench the spirits working in our midst, on the other hand, we need to be discerning so that we don't fall prey to Uh, false spiritual experiences or to false teaching. And the difficulty when it comes to this issue of not quenching the Spirit uh, is made more difficult because there are godly Bible scholars who differ over this particular text of Scripture. Scripture. Uh, there are most most who would be Reformed scholars, that is, believing to the doctrines of grace and so on, um, and that would include many evangelical seminaries, such as Dallas Theological Seminary, the Masters Seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary, and others. They would hold to a view that is called cessationism. And what that means is that Uh, While, on the one hand, they believe God works miracles today, they would argue that the spiritual gifts that are of the miraculous sort in the New Testament um, have ceased after the completion of the apostolic era, the completion of the canon. Uh, That would include gifts such as prophecy, uh, being direct revelation from God, miracles, Tongues, spe- um, healing, interpreting tongues. They would argue that those no longer are in existence even though there are examples of healing, miracles, and so on. It's not the same as the New Testament gift. Uh, John MacArthur had a conference and then wrote a book called Strange Fire a couple of years ago. And his final chapter in that book is an appeal to his non-cessationist, or he calls them continuationist friends, meaning the other side of the camp. And here's where the difficulty is. You have other godly reform scholars, such as Wayne Grudem, whose uh, DVDs we've been watching on Sunday night, Uh, John Piper, uh, D.A. Carson, who is a renowned New Testament scholar at Trinity Seminary, and Sam Storms, who's written a number of books, they all believe that all of the spiritual gifts are still valid in the church today. Now you're wondering, well, where are you at? Uh, Well, I would call myself a very, very cautious non-cessationist, meaning the only reason I'm in the non-cessationist camp is I don't think you can prove biblically Uh, from Scripture, which is our only standard, that all of the gifts have ceased in our era. Having said that, I do agree with the cessationist camp on almost everything else, and that is, I think, almost every example of these supposed gifts functioning today are bogus. They, They are not valid. They do not line up with the New Testament gift. For example, and I have a sermon I preached back in the 1980s in California on our church website about speaking in tongues. And I believe very clearly, I don't think there's a shadow of a doubt that the New Testament gift of tongues was not babbling in nonsense syllables. And 99.9% of tongue speaking today is that. It is not a language That can be interpreted. The New Testament gift of tongues clearly could be interpreted. And you can't interpret babble. You know, if your baby babbles, you can say, oh, he just said he loves daddy. Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, you're reading into that what your baby said. But there's no way for a linguist to come along and apply linguistic techniques to say, yes, there's the noun, there's the verb. There's the uh, direct object. That's what he said, all right. And the same with tongues in the New Testament. It was speaking in a foreign language you had never learned where the hearers could understand it and interpret it. And that discredits almost all tongue speaking today. Again, there are many modern examples of miraculous healing. Praise God for those. But there's no, no one that I have read about or met or heard about who has anywhere near the gifts that the apostles and Christ himself practiced. If so, they could march into the hospital up on the hill and clean them out, put them out of business. Uh, that is not happening today, and almost all of the TV preachers are just a bunch of religious hucksters who are not practicing the New Testament gift of healing. Occasionally, there may be someone with a legitimate prophetic revelation, and that may be legit. But again, I have not heard of anyone practicing that gift as the New Testament prophets practiced it um, in the Bible. So, all of that is an introduction to what we're going to be looking at. First of all, let's look at Paul's first direction here, and that is, we must not quench the Holy Spirit's working in our midst, verses 19 and 20. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Bible scholars admit that we cannot know for certain what problem Paul was addressing here, but probably there were some who were uh, abusing the gift of prophecy in the church gathering and that led to a reaction where some were then either restricting or outright prohibiting it for example when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2 Paul there asked the church that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So someone was perhaps prophesying, saying the day of the Lord has come. Paul says, no, it hasn't, and he is correcting that. And it may be those sorts of extremes or abuses had led some to clamp down and say, all right, no no more, and they were despising prophetic utterances. And just want to mention four ways we can quench the Spirit in our midst. We should not, but it happens. First of all, and here I believe in this context, it's the primary way that Paul is referring to quenching the Spirit, is uh, we we quench the Spirit when we despise prophetic utterances. Now, the big questions, of course, are, all right, what does that mean? What are Prophetic utterances? Uh, Did they cease with the apostolic era, with the completion of the New Testament? Uh, Does God give direct revelation today where a person hears from God? And if so, is it on a par with Scripture? And how does that come? Do people hear audible voices? God speaking in a way that the ear can hear? Or visions, or dreams, or subjective impressions, or spontaneous thoughts, or maybe God just impresses a verse of Scripture on our hearts. How does this happen? Now, in the early church, there seems to have been both the office of prophet. Ephesians four mentions apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And then there was the gift of prophecy, which could um, uh, perhaps uh, include uh, things that continue on today. Uh, The office of prophet, along with apostle, was temporary. Paul in Ephesians 2.20 says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, you don't keep building a foundation after it's laid. You lay the foundation, then the building goes up. And so the apostles and prophets who had direct revelation from God, it's recorded for us in the New Testament, and that since the office of prophet has ceased. The modern debate, though, is could there be a lesser form of prophecy, perhaps a gift of prophecy that is sometimes fallible, and it could include two elements, maybe foretelling, that is, predicting There will be a great earthquake tomorrow in Los Angeles, that kind of foretelling. Or forthtelling, in the sense that a prophet would say, Thus says the Lord to his church, and then they give you a message that purportedly comes from God. And uh, most would say this is not on a par with Scripture. It's not the Word of God. It may be a word from God. I have been in churches where this has been practiced and in one case a man stood up in the church service and thus says the Lord and then he waxed eloquent in King James English for about five minutes. Um, you know, thus this I have against thee that thou hast left thy first love and you know he was going on and on just citing different scriptures out of the King James Bible in sort of an extemporaneous manner and... um claim that the Lord was giving this message to the church. Um, Proponents of this view argue that sometimes it may be mistaken. In other words, these prophets don't bat a thousand. Sometimes they're wrong, and so it has to be evaluated. Uh, Wayne Grudem, and this is one area I would probably differ with Dr. Grudem, but he argues for a more toned-down version of this in his book, The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and today, and also in his systematic theology. John MacArthur spends a chapter in Strange Fire attacking this uh, more watered-down modern view of prophecy. Uh, Grudem defines modern prophecy as, quote, telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. He adds, So prophecies in the church today should be considered merely human words, not God's words, not equal to God's word in authority. And so he disagrees with those in charismatic circles who would say, Thus says the Lord. And Grudem doesn't want to go there. Um, or even saying it's a word from the Lord. Rather, Grudem says, and the, these are his words, I think we we should say something like this, I think the Lord is putting on my mind that, or it seems to me the Lord is showing us thus and so. Well, in my opinion, th- that may be something that's legitimate, we can say to one another, but that's not the New Testament gift which was supernatural revelation from God. And so I think Dr. Grudem, in trying to bridge the gap, maybe waters down the gift too much. On the other hand, John MacArthur, <clears throat> and he's lining up here with John Calvin in his commentary, MacArthur argues that the New Testament gift of prophecy was, quote, the spirit-endowed skill of publicly proclaiming God's revealed truth. In other words, it's the gift of being able to preach. And uh, so he contends, he says, "...revelatory prophetic utterances were limited to the apostolic era, uh, but the non-revelatory gift of prophecy is permanent as preachers are called to preach the word." I am inclined rather to agree with uh, Greg Beale in his commentary. He rejects both the views of Grudem and MacArthur, and he says that prophecy elsewhere in the Bible seems always to be connected with a direct revelation uh, by the Spirit. Dr. Beale says that if, along with the gift of apostle, then This gift ceased in the first century, and he admits that's a debatable point. But he says if it did, and I think he thinks it did, then he says the point of our text for the modern church is that it guards the truth of prophetic scriptural revelation and reject false teachings purportedly grounded on this revelation. Now that still leaves us with the question practically, well, what do you do? When somebody comes up to you and says, Well, the Lord told me something. We've all, almost all of us had that experience. Or maybe God gave me a vision. Or I had a dream in which the Lord showed me. <clears throat> or maybe just in the Wayne Grudem sense, somebody comes up and says, I had a strong sense the Lord wanted me to share this with you. What do you do? Well, My counsel is, first of all, be cautious. Um, Maybe, maybe not, you know, with this person. John Piper had a woman come up to him once when his wife was pregnant with their fourth child. And she said, God gave me a prophecy for you. She even had written it down. And she proceeded to tell him that his wife was going to die in childbirth and give birth to a daughter. Well, Piper went back to his office and wept, but he said when he was with his wife in the delivery room and she delivered a son, he whooped it up for joy because he knew that her prophecy was false. And thankfully his wife, as far as I know, is still living. Um, One time years ago when my kids were still, you know, young children, I woke up in the middle of the night with after a dream where I dreamed one of my children was going to die. Thankfully, I don't remember which one. But um, <clears throat> I just laid in bed in a cold sweat praying for a long, long time, Lord, may that not be a prophecy. And thankfully, it wasn't. They uh, <clears throat> have survived into adulthood. But um, we we need to be cautious and uh At the same time, I will say this, apparently God is bringing many Muslims to faith now in the Middle East through visions and dreams. I wish Dr. MacArthur had dealt with that in his book, Strange Fire, and he does not. Um, The legitimacy there is when they're converted, they basically are cut off from their family and targeted for death. And when they persevere in that, I think it speaks to the genuineness of their conversion. So we need to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. On the other hand, I think there's a need to be cautious. And I've met people who all the time come up and, oh, the Lord told me. The Lord told me. I just want to go, really? Uh, Why doesn't he tell me? I am especially skeptical of these folks who say, the Lord told me, when they say, the Lord told me this for you. At that point, I kind of put up my guard, you know, if they're saying I should do something or something's going to happen to my family or to me. uh, Occasionally, they'll say, you know, it's going to be this great blessing, and I just thank them and say, thank you, I appreciate that. But um, the woman who told Piper that his wife was going to die in childbirth, Number one, she was, uh, you know, totally mistaken. But number two, she was extremely insensitive. I mean, that is just callous to the max to tell somebody that. And I've heard of cases where somebody will tell a young person, Oh, the Lord told me you should marry so-and-so. Or the Lord told me you should pack up and move to Los Angeles and take this job or something. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on.
1: There are other ways
0: to determine the Lord's will in these matters than some supposed prophet announcing it to us. And so I I just don't buy most of that. I would urge you, if somebody tells you something like that, run for cover. You are not dealing with a prophet, at least a true prophet. And um, that's not how God normally reveals his will. So... um, As I'm going to explain in a moment, we need to evaluate every purported prophecy or dream or vision or revelation by Scripture, and if it contradicts Scripture, it's false. Uh, So on the one hand, we shouldn't quench the Spirit by saying God doesn't do that sort of thing. On the other hand, we need a fair measure of um, carefulness so we don't swallow these things just without examination. Let me mention three other ways we may quench the Spirit besides despising prophetic utterances. The second way is uh, we quench the Spirit when we don't believe that God can do far abundantly more than we ask or think. I am here, I have in mind Ephesians 3.20 where Paul says that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all That we ask or think according to the power that works within us. And so what I'm saying is if we doubt that God can work beyond what we can calculate or imagine, we're we're dampening the spirit. We're quenching the spirit. I think an example of that is when the Lord in John 6 asked the disciples, specifically Philip, "Uh, where are we going to get bread to feed this huge multitude? And Philip does the math, you know, well, 200 denarii, no, I don't think 200 denarii would cut it. Well, they didn't even have 200 denarii, so that was a useless exercise. And the point was, they were forgetting that when you put little into the hands of the Lord, it becomes much. And all the Lord wanted them to do was trust him that he could multiply those loaves and fishes, which he did. And so we need to not calculate by our little minds well, let's see, I don't know if we can do this, and da-da-da. Let's trust God to do big things and see what he does. Um, A third way we quench the Spirit is when we trust in our rituals and our routines rather than depending on the Holy Spirit. You know, we're, as Baptists, we distance ourselves from these ritualistic churches that run through their ritual every week. But let's be honest, we have our non-ritual rituals. You know? We, we have our way of doing things, don't we? And we kind of program it and run through the program. And uh, it's easy as a pastor to pre- to well, it's not easy, but you can prepare sermons by a method, a formula. You do this, you do this, you do this, and voila, you have a sermon. Um, we can run through our set of songs. And uh, crank them out every week and partake of communion without even praying or thinking about what we're doing. It's a ritual and so on. Now, be careful because we can swing to the other extent and be totally spontaneous in the flesh. You, You know, in other words, just because we do away with planning or with a set way of doing things doesn't mean we're now relying on the Holy Spirit. Spontaneity is not equivalent to spirit-filled and spirit-dependent. The point is, whether we plan or whether we are spontaneous, are we depending on the Holy Spirit to do the work, recognizing, Lord, we're inadequate, but you are adequate, and so we come to you and depend on you. So, yeah, we can quench the Spirit then by despising prophetic utterances, uh, we can... and can quench the spirit by not trusting God to do what he's capable of doing, uh, by trusting in our rituals and routines. And then fourthly, I think we quench the spirit by tolerating any unrepentant sin, whether it's personally or in the church. Uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer wrote, "...the spirit is quenched by any unyieldedness to the revealed will of God." Uh, In Ephesians 4, in the context of talking about lying and anger and stealing and abusive speech, Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, grieved is different than quenched in that it's more of an emphasis on the emotional side of the relationship, to grieve someone you love, but it's pretty much equivalent in its effect to quenching the Holy Spirit. And if we are tolerating any sin in our lives and then posing to be spiritual or trying to ask God to work through us, it doesn't work. We're, we're cutting off the power source because we're not being truthful before God. We're not confessing our sins and so on, whether individually or as a church. So Paul's first point then is we have to be careful not to quench the Holy Spirit's working in our midst. We do that uh, by despising prophetic utterances, uh, when we limit God by our our little faith, when we trust in our rituals or routines, or when we tolerate any unrepentant sin. Then Paul goes on to balance that by saying that we need to be discerning so we don't fall prey to false spiritual experiences or to false teaching. I believe if Paul had left off after writing verses 19 and 20, the church might have swung to the other extreme and just accepted everything that was going on. Oh, look how God is working in our midst. And so Paul gives us a balance in verses 21 and 22. He says, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every." Form of evil. Three things to note there. First of all, uh, to be discerning, we need to examine everything in light of Scripture. Uh, scripture is our infallible, inerrant guide by which we measure truth and error. It's our only way to measure truth and error. Now, of course, we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture, compare Scripture with Scripture. Uh, assuming that the Lord does not contradict himself. And so we have to really be careful to go to the context, and then if something seems contradictory, say, wait a minute, this has to be in harmony with that. For example, if the Apostle Paul says that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation, as he does in Romans 9, And he says in Romans 10 that we are responsible to believe. I have to believe those are not in contradiction. They're both true because they're both in Scripture. And we have to iron out the wrinkles in our thoughts as to, well, that doesn't seem to fit. Another example, if Paul says, as he does in Romans 4, we are justified by faith alone and James in James 2 says we are not justified by faith alone, but by faith plus works, Uh, I am assuming those are not in contradiction. And I have a sermon in James 2 explaining that. But what I'm saying is simply don't just grab a verse out of context and, and say, oh, Bible says this. No, you have to study it in its context and then compare Scripture with Scripture, which is to say you have to become a theologian. And we all are theologians of one degree or another. The question is, are we careful biblical theologians, or are we a little sloppy in it? But the point is, it has to line up with Scripture, otherwise it needs to be rejected. Secondly, note that to be discerning, we need to recognize that there are both genuine and counterfeit spiritual experiences and genuine and counterfeit spiritual teaching. Jesus warns in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 that false prophets uh, are wolves disguising themselves as sheep so that the sheep think there's a sheep. No, he's out to eat you alive. Um, With reference to the end times in Matthew 24 uh, Jesus stated very plainly, Matthew twenty four eleven, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And then in verse twenty-four, he adds, For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and they will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So pretty impressive show these guys can put on, but Jesus said, don't believe them, they're false. As I said earlier, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his servants as servants of righteousness, not unrighteousness. One time I read about a seminary professor who assigned his students for the semester the task of figuring out what is the most frequent truth mentioned in the New Testament. And after they had done their homework and come back, they recognized that warnings about false teaching are the main uh, teaching in the New Testament. Over and over and over and over, the Bible warns us about false teaching, so we have to be on guard. Back in the 18th century, and let me preface this by saying I pray often for revival, but I pray for revival with a matter of fear and trembling. Because whenever revival comes, there's fake spiritual experiences that come and deceive many, and back in the eighteenth century, there was what is called the first great awakening. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was at the forefront of that. George Whitfield came over from England and helped much of it, and a lot of it was good. there was intensified interest in spiritual things. There were many professions of faith in Christ. Uh, Many of God's people had unusual joy in the Lord. There was exuberant singing. Uh, There were emotional outbursts of weeping and people crying out to God. All sorts of things that were fine. Critics, however, attacked the revival as just being uh, pure emotionalism. And they argued that True religion was more a matter of the mind, not of the emotions, so everybody calmed down and learned theology from us, so to speak, and they dampened down the emotions. Jonathan Edwards, who was in the center of it, did an exhaustive study in God's Word about what characterizes a genuine work of the Spirit of God, and he wrote a a profound book called A Treatise on Religious Affections, which has been called the best manual on discernment ever written. The problem is it's not easy to read. I waded through it once, and it is good, but Edwards writes in these sentences that an English teacher would have nightmares over there, you know, half a page long, And trying to diagram them, much less understand them, is difficult. Thankfully, there are some writers who have sorted through all of that. Sam Storms wrote a book, Signs of the Spirit, where he kind of walks you through the treatise on religious affections. I just read uh, Gerald McDermott's book, Seeing God, Twelve Signs of True Spirituality. And I've often had out on the book table here a little short, 100-page condensed version, modern English, called The Experience That Counts, uh, which seeks to make that book more accessible. Um, Edwards uh, came up with a number of unreliable signs of spirituality, and then he gives these 12 signs of genuine spiritual experience that you can test yourself or others by. So I encourage you to read maybe one of the more modern um, expositions of that. But the point I'm making is just don't swallow every teaching whole. As if, oh wow, yeah. Or every spiritual experience that comes along as if it's legitimate. I have met many, many people, again, who claim that speaking in tongues has deepened their walk with God. Okay, but... Are they speaking in the New Testament gift of tongues, or are they just babbling in nonsense syllables? If the latter, it's not the New Testament gift. And I hope it's helped them, but I'm somewhat skeptical. Uh, Same thing, people get slain in the Spirit, and uh, there is no New Testament example of that. They use the story of Jesus with the soldiers in the garden as their... Text, But that's hardly an example of what they're practicing. So the, the question you have to ask is, does this experience line up with Scripture? If so, probably valid. If not, it's bogus. And then the third thing to note is that to be discerning, Paul says, we have to hold to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. Um, you now we can apply that more broadly... Uh, holding to what is good and abstaining from every form of evil. But sticking to the context, Paul is referring to the good means genuine manifestations of the spirit, and the evil are these false experiences and false teachings that are spiritually counterfeit. So, on the one hand, we are not to be skeptical and aloof from the spiritual genuine, spiritually genuine hold to it, on the other hand, we're not to be gullible and um, and and embrace or be tolerant of that which is not from God, which Paul says is evil. So, if a man claims to be speaking or acting in the power of the Spirit, but his teaching doesn't line up with the Bible, put the brakes on. Uh, this isn't right. Or if a man's life is marked by unrepentant lust or greed or disobedience to God's word, or he purports to speak in God's name, making a prediction, and then it doesn't come true, he's not a true prophet. Put the brakes on, back off from that person. Um, I would argue that most of these TV preachers who are gaining these big audiences and so on claiming to receive fresh revelations or prophecies from God. They're just religious hucksters, and avoid them. And if you want multiple documented examples, read John MacArthur's book, Strange Fire. He shows you example after example of these well-known TV preachers and others who are immoral, they are greedy, they are godless, uh, they are false teachers. The main way, again, that God speaks to us today is through his inspired word, properly interpreted. Um, And again, if I could just urge you, don't just grab verses out of context. You've probably heard this story many times over. It's proverbial, but there was a guy that wanted to know God's guidance in his life. So he opens the Bible and points to a verse, and it says, Judas went out and hanged himself. And the guy thought, well, that can't be God's will for me. So let's try again. So he tries it a second time and he hits on the verse that says, go thou and do likewise. And now he's really worried and he thinks, no, no, that can't be true. And so a third time he hits on the verse, what thou doest, do quickly. Well, that's not how you interpret scripture properly. And I, I do believe the Spirit of God can impress certain verses on our hearts. Maybe a verse that just God shows you in Scripture, in context, and it weighs on you more than it weighs on others, and that's legitimate. In fact, that's why I'm a pastor. Is I, I was thinking about being a doctor, and I just thought, you know, Christ promised to build his church, and I want to be part of that, and Christ loved his church and gave himself for it, and I want to be a part of that, and he impressed that on my heart to the point that I thought I could be a doctor, but I wouldn't be directly involved in loving and building Christ's church, Now he doesn't impress everybody the same way with that verse, those verses, and that's fine, but he did me, and so he can do that. But I'm just saying beware of random subjective impressions. If they're just grabbing a verse out of context, you have to go to Scripture in its totality. Now, Paul here doesn't give us criteria for examining everything carefully, but John Stott, in his commentary, gives five helpful tests based on other Scriptures. The first test is the one I've been mentioning, and that is the plain truth of Scripture Dr. Stott says, let's be Bereans. The Bereans didn't just swallow what Paul told them, but they went to the Bible and checked it out to say, is what he's saying about the Christ true? And when they found out it was, they believed. A second test is the divine human person of Jesus Christ. We'll look at that more next week. But anyone who denies either the full deity or the full humanity of Christ is a false teacher. Uh, avoid them. Third test is the gospel of God's free grace, his saving grace through Christ. If anyone preaches a different gospel, Paul says, let him be anathema, condemned. So the gospel is central. The fourth test is the known character of the speaker, as I mentioned. Uh, Jesus said, by their fruits you'll know them, and if they aren't living a life that lines up with the Word of God, then avoid them. And then the fifth test is the degree to which the teaching builds up the hearers. If it encourages, strengthens the saints, equips them for ministry, gives comfort to those who are hurting, that sort of thing, as well as convicts those who are in sin, then it is true in uh, teaching, and we should receive it. So Paul is giving us then a balance On the one hand, don't quench the Holy Spirit's working in our midst. On the other hand, be discerning so that you don't fall prey to false experiences or false teaching. Let's bow before the Lord. I just mentioned the gospel, and let me say, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ and you don't know that your sins are forgiven, and you're not sure that you're going to heaven, the good news of the Bible is that Christ came into this world to save sinners. And that may be the biggest hurdle we all have to get over, and that is we all have sinned, and we fall short of God's glory. And that means that none of us can get into heaven by piling up good works. But the good news is that Christ came and died on the cross to take the penalty of our sin that we deserve. And the incredible news is that he offers complete forgiveness of sin and eternal life as a free gift to every person who will trust in Christ and receive him as Savior and Lord. And that offer is to you this morning No matter how badly you may have messed up, no matter how many skeletons you got hiding in your closet, Jesus knows them all. And the Bible assures us that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so you can come to Christ and know you will not be condemned but welcomed. And... Eternal life is a free gift for the taking. It's the greatest gift you can receive in this Christmas season. Dear Father, I pray that you would open hearts and lives to the truth. Give us discernment as your people. Uh, At the same time, we don't want to do anything to quench your Holy Spirit's working mightily and powerfully in our midst. And so we ask that you would um, help us to apply this scripture to our lives.